This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Aphasia is, it's not a word that many people know, certainly compared to a word like dementia. The way that therapy is delivered at the moment has no basis in science. It's just, that's how it always was. There's a slight trend for patients to make bigger gains the longer they are away from their stroke. So the patients who come into our service are often months or years, or sometimes even a decade down the road from their brain injury. And yet almost always we see them picking up and improving in certain areas. Hello and welcome to On A Good Day with me, Elizabeth Callahan, And me, Julia Ajayi. This is the podcast which delves into brain injury and its impact on all involved. On today's episode, we'll be talking about a condition that affects many brain injury survivors, aphasia. It's something we have experience of with our husbands and we know the frustration it can bring. Aphasia affects how people communicate So for example, they may know what they want to say, but find it difficult to get the words out. Well, we're delighted to be joined by Alex Leff, who is a professor of neurology at University College London. Professor Leff is the co-founder of a revolutionary aphasia program taking place at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery at Queen Square London. The program has been made possible through funding from the National Brain Appeal. It delivers high intensity therapy to help those who suffer from aphasia. Well, hello and welcome to the podcast, Professor Alex Leff. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, we've got plenty to get through as this is such a huge topic and one which we know our audience will be very keen to hear. And we personally have so many questions to ask. But to start with, could you briefly explain to those who may not know what aphasia is and the effect it has on those who suffer from it and consequently their families, and then get into how your programme works? Hi, listen, Julia, thanks uh, for inviting me on your programme. Yeah, aphasia is it's a bit of a technical word, and, and we know from work that, that um, various researchers have done that it's not a word that many people know unless unless they've come across it either themselves or, or if one of their relatives um, has had it, certainly compared to a word like dementia, which we know that most people understand at least vaguely what that means. Uh, only about a third of people, if you ask them in the street, know what aphasia is. It means that there's been some damage uh, to the brain that's caused a problem with language, Language is complicated. Uh, You can think of it in a simple term that there are two main ways that language gets out of the brain, which is 
you know, what we're doing now, which is speaking uh, or writing, and two main ways the language gets into the brain, which is uh, listening, again, which we're all doing, um, or reading. And all of those four main components of language uh, can be damaged by uh, brain injury, so stroke or subarachnoid hemorrhage or traumatic brain injury. And most people with aphasia have a mixture of damage to those four key areas. The effects of that uh, is obviously quite wide ranging. Uh, humans are very social animals and one of the things that perhaps sets humans apart from other animals is language uh, and we use language to maintain our social networks uh, at all times. So one of the secondary effects, so the primary effect of having brain injury that causes aphasia is that your language is damaged which sounds bad enough and we know from asking patients that it is really bad but it has secondary knock-on effects it affects people's relationships with other people so their social circle shrinks i'd say social isolation low mood uh, are very common in patients who have aphasia they have stroke and brain injury that doesn't affect language but it's particularly prominent i think in patients who have aphasia it has wide-ranging effects in people's lives and it's very important that we address it the good news is there there, there are things that we can do we do know um, that people with brain injury uh, can improve um, but it's a long hard road some of the improvement is sometimes called spontaneous improvement and that is that people usually pick up over the first few days and weeks usually due to um, physical changes in the brain so things like swelling and bruising that goes down but beyond that when you're looking at rehabilitation you're really looking at relearning reconnecting with parts of the language system that have not been damaged and I've never seen a patient with brain damage who's wiped out their language so it's not like you lose all your language and are like a baby and have to start all over again but some of the language connections are damaged and, and you gave the, the commonest example is a problem with word finding which actually everybody has at some point in their lives and as you get older you get it more and more this thing called tip of the tongue and it often happens with proper names so sort of people's names or, or famous names um, and, you, and you can't quite remember them or well, that very embarrassing situation which a lot of people have when you're just about to introduce somebody and you just you know you almost know you're going to forget the name at that moment and then you do and it's so embarrassing because names are so important um, but imagine having that tip of the tongue rather than having it every few weeks or rarely if you had it every time you wanted to say something and that's that's what a lot of people with a aphasia suffer is this problem with it's not that the words aren't there the words are in their brain so the words haven't been wiped out but access to the words is difficult or on the input side they will sometimes mishear what people have said or misread things so tell us, how is your program helping those people with aphasia? And get, get into what you're doing kind of on a daily basis, the therapy that's involved. The, the best thing you can do to improve your language uh, or any other part of your cognition, your thinking and memory skills, is really to engage a therapist. So a, a trained human who is basically a coach. There are other things you can do, which I've also got an interest in, sort of therapy apps. But for most people, the, the most powerful thing is to spend time with a, with a trained therapist, for instance, a speech and language therapist or a, a clinical psychologist or a, an occupational therapist. All of these people can help patients who've got uh, aphasia. A bit like if you had weakness down one side of your body or weakness with your upper limb, you would engage a physiotherapist. The problem, of course, is time and dose. The way that the healthcare system is set up in the NHS, but not just in the NHS, in, in most healthcare systems, you just don't get enough therapy dose uh, with, a, with a trained professional. Uh, we know that in the NHS, you will get something in the region of six hours spread out over the, a week or two while you're in hospital, uh, if you're in hospital for a couple of weeks, or if you go to a rehabilitation unit. Um, but then when you go into the community, you may get four, six, or possibly eight sessions spread over 
you know, a couple of months. And then you'll very likely be discharged because the community rehabilitation team uh, will have given you what they can um, and they tend to be very equitable and then they move on to the next patient. But the problem is that this sort of current dosing through all of the healthcare systems that I've come across in the world is not based on the neuroscience of how we learn language or how we recover from language. One way to think about recovery is just that it's like learning all over again. So if you ask yourself the question, how long did it take to establish language? And in actual fact, you never finish establishing language. You can continue to learn new words, new phrases, new ways of communicating throughout your life. And we forget how long it takes for the brain to come to grips with language. So the idea that you could claw back what you've lost from a significant stroke or brain injury in six hours or eight hours or 12 hours, to me, just doesn't seem to make any sense. It's not that you won't gain something, but the idea that that would be it is nonsensical from the neuroscience uh, point of view. So what patients need is, is many hours of therapy. And of course, that's expensive and difficult to do. And one of the things we've tried to do with our aphasia service, the ICAP, which stands for Intensive Comprehensive Aphasia Programme, is to get this high dose of therapy in. And the most efficient way to do that is kind of like a boot camp. So uh, patients come for three weeks to the service, Monday to Friday, and we hit them pretty hard. Um, they do somewhere between five and seven hours of therapy a day, which will be working predominantly with a speech and language therapists, also with a psychologist at other times, sometimes one-to-one, -one, like we're sort of talking now, sometimes in groups because language is a social thing, and sometimes even working with their partners. This was something you also talked about and something that is important is that partners or friends learn a little bit about how to communicate so that when patients leave the service, they've got some resources or, or um, partners or their friends are upskilled to at least uh, help them continue to recover in the community. Really, the best would be if, if people had long doses of therapy that went on for long periods of time. So even the service we've set up is not perfect. It's just a way of getting a big dose, sort of 80 to 90 hours, squeezed in in a short period of time. Now, of course, some patients, they can't tolerate that. If, if you said to me, well, I want to get fit. I said, great, let's go down the gym every day next week. And you're like, okay, every day. Uh, so actually, we're going to be there for five or six or seven hours. You, you say, well, I'm not doing that. But that's kind of um, what we're asking of our patients. So not everybody's up to that. And certainly in the acute phase after their stroke, so in the first weeks and months, most patients have not got the tolerance for that. They often have this thing called fatigue or neurogenic fatigue, where they just cannot manage that kind of intensity. So the patients who come into our service are often months or years, or sometimes even a decade down the road from their brain injury. And yet almost always we see them picking up and improving in certain areas. So that's a very important message is that if patients have retained what we call the capacity to learn, then they can continue to improve from input from therapists for many years. So this idea that you should have all of your therapy front loaded. So it's a small dose. We know that's a big problem. And the second problem is it's very front loaded. So it's quite hard to get any therapy outside the first six months, shall we say, unless you keep nagging and pushing, uh, which you can do. You know, therapists in the community are not immune to seeing patients more than once if they think that they can make a difference. But of course, they have these large caseloads. And generally, most of your input is in the first six months or maybe the first year. And it's not at all clear to me that that is necessarily where you will make the biggest in inputs. In fact, some of the data that we've looked at, there's a slight trend for patients to make bigger gains the longer they are away from their stroke. 
which is an interesting, most people would predict it would be the other way, but we've, we have got a trend of that. So it doesn't really matter how long you are after your stroke or brain injury, as long as you retain this capacity to learn and ability to respond to training or coaching from a professional. Alex, I can only say that that is fascinating and you've already picked up on so many of the thoughts that we were talking about before the interview. With my husband 12 years post his brain injury, I think you're certainly bearing out what we actually see in practice rather than what we necessarily see from the medical point of view. And certainly our experience was similar in that his speech therapy that he received was a small dose that was very front loaded. But because of more recent crisis in his health, he's had a bit more speech and language therapy input, which has definitely brought him on huge, you know, leaps and bounds again after 12 years after after his initial um, brain injury. So I just think that that is absolutely fascinating and really gives hope to so many of us, actually, as we look at a life together over, over so many years. That's completely made my day. I think that there's gives us so much to work on. Yeah, um, definitely really does. Absolutely. Yeah, it really does. And it will be really interesting to hear from you about the conversation partner training, I believe it's called, within your programme. And so what we can do as family members and friends to support our loved ones and people that we're in contact with who have aphasia to get the best outcomes for them. I think that's very important. I'm advocating along with Professor Jenny Crinian, who helped set up this service. She's the best of speech and language therapy here at UCL and Queen Square. We are really trying to get this dose up with speech and language therapy and, uh, and psychology input. But of course, it's never going to be perfect and upskilling carers or patients themselves. So as you say, this conversation partner training is a way of giving some sort of tips and pointers and coaching for how uh, carers can interact uh, with patient um, or survivor to help them improve but also to get out of some perhaps some bad habits so I think um, what often happens with aphasia is and we've already mentioned one of the big issues is that patients are often a bit slow to find words they kind of get hung up and of course it's natural to want to help them in certainly in social situations if they're I don't know trying to order a coffee um you know, or they're in a queue trying to order a ticket or something and they're struggling, uh, if they've got a loved one with them, the loved one will probably kind of, you know, sort of barge in and, and do the job for them or, or knows, you know, knows the word that they're after and sort of supplies it. And of course, this helps in a way, it moves the conversation along, but it doesn't really help the survivor who, who, who sometimes quietens down and, and does less and less and is talking less and less, is interacting less and less because the people around them are doing it for them. And although there are some situations where, of course, time pressure, it's fine to do that. In general, it's, that's a bad idea. And really, we need to give these patients the time and the space to practice themselves and help them get over these hurdles and give them some tips and ways of finding that right word. If they have a particular trouble with that word, coffee or cup of tea, let's work on that. Let's work on how you reaccess that word so that when you want to bring it to mind, you can do so. So sometimes it means loved ones actually taking a little bit of a step back, being more patient and not doing the heavy lifting of the language work for the patient. Otherwise, they just won't. They get this sort of learned helplessness thing that it sort of becomes a thing that they can't do anymore. Uh, and that's definitely something that we've seen uh, in, in some of the more 
what I suppose we would call the qualitative outcomes, which is when we ask people how this service has helped them, a lot of patients and relatives simply say they're talking more. That's very important. You know, people sometimes get used to the fact they've got a problem. They've somehow got the message that they're not really going to get much better. Maybe they've plateaued or they feel they've plateaued. Uh, and then you end up with these sort of behavior patterns, which mean that, th that they're just going to stay in that plateau. So that's that's not the only bit about conversation partner training, but that's part of it. Um, and it's it's fitted to the individual and their uh, their loved ones. So it, it's not like a fixed um, series of advice. It depends. And again, that's why you need an experienced therapist or coach who knows who can judge the interaction and knows how best to help it move along. So um, how can people like us access that? Because, uh, you know, already you've challenged me and I do fill in some of the gaps. And, you know, I think that we've uh, we've got into quite a pattern of that. And I always think that it helps flow with conversation. Uh, but I also recognise the importance of my husband having his own conversation without me there. But obviously, there's still a lot for, for us all to learn, for me to learn. Um, and as a, as a family to be able to, to get those best outcomes for us all, really. So where can we access some of these resources? I mean, it is it is difficult. I think there's nothing wrong with advocating and pushing in the community. You know, what therapists like is some structure to your request. So if you say, if you sort of say to your GP, who usually are the gatekeepers for, for getting referred back to your community therapy team, I would just want to get his or her language better you know that there it's a bit like well yeah everybody wants to be better and this is one of the problems with brain injury you, you can improve yourself but you're as i'm sure you've experienced it's it's relatively rare to go completely back to normal if you've had a very severe brain injury um but you can start you can still nudge up um as you've talked about so it's often good to say well yeah look i've heard about this conversation partner training thing i've never done it but you know read some articles about it and it seems like it would be appropriate could you offer us some of that? And that might be a better way of sort of getting back into uh, the system rather than just saying, we want help, but I don't really know what kind of help we want. If the more specific your goal is, therapists love goals um, uh, and it shows that you've thought about it. So if, if you say, well, you know, I'd like to get my partner talking to his mates or her mates in the pub or in the coffee house, I think they can get there, but at the moment, these are the barriers stopping them. Would you be able to help me work with those? That is more likely to get a positive response than just a non-specific sort of cry for help. And it also helps manage expectations uh, and it helps the therapists. It gives them something to aim for because you can work on lots of things. You can work on um, the impairment itself, which we've talked about. So you can work on individual words or you can work on how language functions or you can work on the social side. And I think if you have a clear goal, something you would like to be doing that you're not currently doing, that is a is a reasonable goal to aim for and is not ridiculously ambitious, then therapists are more likely to respond to that. But I agree it's difficult. Uh, I think therapists are generally very equitable and they, they want to um, be fair and give everybody a fair chance. But the problem is they just don't have enough time to give anybody <laughs> the actual optimum dose that they need. So it's trying to juggle that. 
And I suppose on a day-to-day basis, it is improving those conversations and and presumably getting them to um, talk to as many different people as possible and kind of re-engaging with those friendships and getting them out into the community. And obviously COVID's had a massive knock-on effect. I'm not sure if you've seen that yourself um, in that we haven't had those connections. You know, my husband didn't kind of disengage from a lot of his friends during lockdown, which I, I can see is has happened across the board yes uh covid hasn't helped uh anything as far as stroke patients or brain injury patients uh, are concerned what was already a, a sort of low dose service got disrupted i think community teams in general have been pretty good about going into people's homes or doing things remotely and you know there are some positives you can uh, do therapy remotely we ran a separate program called enroll which was um an online therapy program Uh, sponsored by a different charity called Same You, which we ran for six months. And it was group online therapy uh, run with um, Professor Nick Ward, who does upper limb stuff, and Dr. Catherine Dugan and some others. She's a psychologist. And actually what we found, one of the interesting things from that was the positive effects of having groups. And in a way, that's really important for language. Language is all about communication. There's no point just sitting in a room on your own talking to the wall or like doing crosswords or something. Language is all about social interaction. So you've got to have that social interaction environment there. In the past, of course, one would do it by stroke groups. So you would go to a space, maybe in a church or a cafe at a certain time. And as we know, a lot of patients and their carers just getting out of the house, forgetting COVID, just getting out of the house, getting somewhere, public transport, getting there on time, you know, getting there in the right mood is often a struggle but there would there are and still are quite a lot of aphasia support groups which I would encourage people to join but now I think actually doing that online is great people can join from their own home um, and you can have quite a lot of people on the call and we found that to be a really good way of of continuing um, sort of making inroads and two other things I'd say about that is it gives aphasic patients a chance to see other people who've had got aphasia problems with language or problems with other thinking or memory skills Uh, and although everybody's different there are also a lot of similarities and just seeing other people in the same boat Uh, and again hearing sharing tips you know this worked for us maybe it'll work for you um, I think is really important so online groups ultimately I think are going to be very important but you can't just set them up on your own without any um, sort of professional support but I think that's one way and I think carers I think carers um, get lost you know you're both carers and that if anybody's got less support than the patient with brain injury it's the carers of the patients with brain injury and that is something that we've also seen is a huge a gap um, and of course carers they scaffold so much stuff and take on so much of a burden and a pressure uh, and then when we had these carers groups again online And the only rule was that patients weren't allowed to come to those. So only carers could come. And those were some carers, not all of them, found those hugely supportive. Uh, And I think that's another area that we need to look at in in supporting carers much better than we do. And something, again, that we don't we don't do enough in the NHS or haven't thought about creative ways of doing that. But ultimately, I think carer support groups with a, with a little bit of input from somebody like a speech therapist or a clinical psychologist, once they're up and running again, and they can keep going and sort of snowballing. And then people do become experts in helping themselves and experts in helping other people. 
So I think that is one way of making sure that therapy gains can continue to be made down the down the long time of recovery. Yes, thank you, Alex. I, I think that's uh, it's great to to see that whole picture around someone. I think um, because. Uh, it's certainly something that we're trying to do in this podcast is to look at all of the, the support systems around someone with a brain injury. Um, and I think we also have to acknowledge that there's so much work being done in the um, charity sector as well, with a lot of organisations holding uh, communication groups and, uh, you know, some carer support as well. But of course, there's always room for more. Um, and I wanted to also ask you about that, the, the responsibility on other people to provide that safe space for the person with aphasia to move into and to feel safe to communicate. And I think, um, you know, we, we've both seen that friends, some friends fall away and some family members find it difficult to communicate and the person that they were used to speaking to in the way that they were used to speaking to might might not be able to or usually isn't able to communicate in the same way and uh, some people find that really difficult but i think the uh, the joys and benefits of still engaging with those friendships is so huge so could you say something about um not just carers but that kind of wider circle of people of friends um and major maybe wider family members and how they might be able to um, kind of join in this conversation. I think that's absolutely important. You know, you can think of the different relationships you have almost like a, like a dartboard or target, and you've got your very close family and friends, sort of the people you're very close to, which is usually not a huge number of people. And then you've got a bigger ring of people outside that who are perhaps, um, you know, good, good friends of yours, but you perhaps don't see on a daily basis day-to-day basis and then outside that you've got more I guess acquaintances and people that you might see at work socially occasionally or your neighbours you know and actually all of those rings are important because they all enable you to you have to use language with all of them and what tends to happen is it shrinks right down so the burden of of practicing communication or 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 just managing um the, the person uh, who's had the brain injury just falls down to a tiny group of people who then suffer, frankly. So the more that we can encourage these other people a bit further out in the target, the better it is for everybody. Um, and you've mentioned some people struggle with it. Of course they do. They haven't had experience of it. It's a stigmatizing condition, although it's not always obvious from looking at somebody who's just got aphasia that they've had a stroke or brain injury, as soon as you start talking to them, it becomes pretty obvious. And we're very used to judging people's mental state from what they say. We do it all the time. We're always picking up on cues. If you think someone's a bit dodgy or are they, are they drunk or are they angry or are they dangerous or, you know, are they a bit crazy or something? We make all those judgments based on what they say largely some extent how they behave so when somebody's language is disrupted and abnormal we sometimes get a feeling within ourselves that there's something not right in their mind and that can be quite unpleasant it's certainly not always true and that can add to the stigma and again some people just think well they've got a problem with their language i'll avoid it let's not chat you know let's not let's not make it obvious you know i'll do all the talking or basically i'll avoid seeing them because it's a little bit uncomfortable and of course some people are going to fall away but 
again, once you say, actually, that's that's not helpful, the most helpful thing is to engage, is to talk, is to let them do some talking, is to help them along, is not to cover up and, and pretend that they don't have a language problem or say, pretend that you understand when you don't and just say, like, I missed that, I didn't get it. Um, do you mean this? Do you mean that? Rather than just gloss over it. Because the patient with aphasia can spot all that and it then doesn't become very rewarding if, if they realize that, that the person they're trying to have a conversation with is just trying to get it over with as quickly as possible or, or make it seemingly in an attempt to be kind, sort of make it really easy, but actually not confront the difficulty. And in a way, talking to somebody who, you know, we've all done it a bit, you know, had conversations with people we don't share a language with, you can actually make quite a lot of inroads with somebody who doesn't share your language using expressions and body language uh, and all other kinds of things. So I think encouraging people who are a bit further out, maybe not in the kind of bullseye, to continue to have conversations and to continue to have a relationship with the, the stroke survivor or the person with brain injury is really, really important. And again, that's another knock-on effect because a lot of people with aphasia, a lot of people with stroke or brain injury, they, they lose their job one way or another. Um, you know, they go on sick leave, it can be hard to come back. It can be stigmatizing. There isn't a lot of support um, for people getting back into work. And again, they may not want to be a bother. You know, oh, it's better if I, I'll just, you know, give up that job, I'll stay at home. I would generally encourage people to try and stay in the job they did because it's another thing that they knew really well. So to sort of say, oh, well, I'll jack that in and somewhere down the line, I'll get a new job. You know, trying to get a new job is much harder than trying to go back to your old job after you've had a brain injury. It's another sort of separate area called vocational rehabilitation. And there are, again, experts in this. But I think it's really important that, that people with brain injury do get back to work in some capacity if they can. Um, if if their work gave them some enjoyment or some meaning in life, and for most people it does. So that's another thing. If you end up sitting at home, not having a job, you're interacting with people less, you feel less valuable. Um, and again, that can have a knock-on effect on mood. Uh, and therefore, again, you're talking less, you're depressed. You don't feel like seeing people. Suddenly you don't feel like seeing, you know, your cousin or your brother or your sister who you used to get on with quite well. You sort of think, oh, I'll give it a miss. And that's really where you end up with just a very, very small um, support network, which puts strain on the carers and, and can break those relationships. Let's be honest. Well, again, some great advice there. And I think that as um, as carers, there's also sometimes support that we can give because of some of the difficulties with executive functions and planning in terms of making those contacts or keeping those contacts to bring people back in to maintain those friendships. And also in work, I know we're going to be looking at some of these issues in other podcasts, but support about, for example, through access to work. Um, and even if people can't return to the same job, uh, pathways through volunteering and other types of jobs will be things that we'll be looking at too. I also had a, a question about when someone speaks more than one language, because my husband's multilingual and has aphasia in all of his the languages that he um, speaks and what advice you might give about maintaining those other languages. Yes, so uh, your experience is is the is by far and away the commonest one. Um, languages are kind of at some level it's it's not a very discreetly placed around the brain. So it's not like you've got your first language in this part of the brain and then when you learn a second language, French or Spanish, it goes into a slightly different part of the brain. 
it's not like you can knock out languages, you know, um, occasionally we hear reports of that, but when you look carefully, it's almost never the case. So it's almost like language is this un unity, unitary function. And then you can obviously talk in different languages. You have your concepts in your mind, and then you can say them in one language or another. So it's almost always the case that multiple languages are affected. And generally, it's not always the first language, but it's usually the first language that is the strongest language. Everybody has what's known as a dominant language, and that's the one that you use most of the time. Some people really are. We had a trilingual speaker who really was. She spoke a third of her three languages pretty much equally, and they were all equally affected. It's not like, oh, OK, well, you know, one language will be unaffected, so I'll just use that. They will all be affected. And generally, the least well-known language or the least used language or the least dominant language will be the most affected language. So you're better off playing to your strengths. But there are some languages where the word's a bit easier as if we're talking about getting words out. So it generally it's harder to get out polysyllabic words or longer words. So if there's a word in a language that is a bit different um, and shorter and easier to access for whatever reason, then use that. So I think there are some advantages to be multilingual. But in general, it's not as advantageous as you might think. You might think, oh, I've got lots of languages. I will therefore be less affected by a stroke that affects language, but that's not the case. In fact, it's, it actually doesn't seem to make much difference. They, all of the languages will be affected uh, and it can even have knock-on effects because if you've got one of your minor languages affected and you just use that to talk to a certain person, then that's gonna be even worse, unfortunately. But again, they, they come back, they come back in tandem, so, um, but, but generally you have to work you have to work on the specific language so i would say the advice would be to work on the language you use the most the dominant language and to work on the things you want to get back the most now presumably you've seen amazing results with this aphasia program what is the way well first of all can you give us some examples of some some of the um patients that you've had in that have seen huge results and but also what are the next steps forward with the program and how can this be rolled out so that more brain injury survivors can benefit and live richer lives and can get more access to this kind of therapy we have seen um major improvements on on all of the outcomes we've looked at so far so the impairment based stuff getting words out that's got better function what what you can do so one of the functional measures we ask the carer or loved one or whoever knows the patient the best rate them out of 10 on you know their ability to start a conversation or have a conversation in a noisy environment or answer the phone and then rate them again at these other time points and they've made significant gains on all of those we also we're doing a bit of work what's called uh, qualitative work. So we also set goals. I, I talked a little bit about goals before, but goals are a way of individualizing the therapy. So although the therapist will have set um, ways of uh, interacting with patients, of course, each patient has got their own series of problems or impairments and their own series of things that they want to be able to do with their language. And a lot of people have understood that they're not just going to sit there for three weeks and come out at the end of it completely back to normal. So it's like, well, what should we focus on in these three weeks? So we get the patients to come up with these goals with the therapist and we're analysing those at the moment. And we ask them to set short-term goals, medium-term goals, long-term goals and some economic goals. Uh, Julia mentioned this Getting back to work is possibly the hardest thing, but you can do other things like getting back to volunteering. But we did have a couple of patients, for instance, who were still in work, but had various problems, perhaps communicating with certain people at work uh, or 
as I say, on the telephone. So somebody's goal was to be able to manage a telephone conversation. It sounds like a little thing, but before the program, they couldn't. And then after the program, they rated their competence as eight out of 10. So not back to normal. Another patient wanted to be able to um, read a story to his kids before he couldn't. And then after he could, he wasn't perfect. But on the audio recording, you can actually understand what the story is after the, after the therapy program and not before. So all of these little goals are, are little steps for individuals, but they can be, they can be big steps in terms of the, the sort of effect they have on people's lives. In terms of taking things forward, I mean, this is um, the National Brain Appeal have supported this program for two years, £600,000. And that basically goes to the on costs, which are really the, the salary for the therapist. So we've got extra therapists in. That's how we've got you know, the service to deliver all this therapy is by getting extra therapists in and getting them to really work hard on, on the patients, which they also found rewarding, by the way. But how do we get it commissioned? It happens in an NHS service. So the NHS provide the space. Um, the National Brain Appeal provide the money. And of course, what we want to do is get it commissioned. And I'm sure you two know a lot about NHS commissioning and how difficult it is. But in short, you have to make a business case and prove that you're making a big difference to patients' lives. And it is therefore good use of public money within the NHS, within the budget of the NHS, that this is worth doing. The service that we've set up costs about five or five and a half thousand pounds um, for the three weeks. That's that's what it sort of costs the NHS, which seems like a lot. There's no way that that is being spent on your average um, patient with a stroke or brain injury who's who's had aphasia. But of course, if you try and get uh, private speech and language therapy, it comes in at about £100 an hour or so. So you could very easily burn through that if you tried to do it yourself. Uh, it's about the cost of a hip operation, you know, but nobody's up in arms going, oh, you know, you broke your hip, oh, well, five and a half grand to get your hip fixed. I'm not sure about that, you know. But, you know, people suck their teeth when they hear that this is how much our service costs. But the effect of aphasia is is really bad when you look at the work that's been done on people with aphasia. It's one of the worst things to have. There's, there's a very nice study um, looking at thousands of people who had all kinds of different uh, problems who were living in nursing homes. And aphasia was came out top. It was worse than being quadriplegic, which means you can't move your four limbs. It was worse than having dementia. So it's a really unpleasant symptom. And I think people should be spending money on it. I think the NHS should be spending money on it. And it's part of my job and other people's jobs who work in the NHS, but also patients to basically advocate and to get NHS commissioners to, to commission these services. But that is the really hard bit, but that's our next step. We just need to make the case that it's, it's not right to leave people in the lurch with not enough therapy, um, just because that's the way the service was set up. The, the way that therapy is delivered at the moment has no basis in science. It's just, that's how it always was. Mm -hmm. Uh, actually the model for speech therapy comes from schools where a speech therapist would go to a school once a week as they and they would go to different schools on on different days and would see patients would see not patients they would see children who had say language delay or a stutter and that's really where the nhs model has come from that's why you might see your therapist once a week for six to eight weeks because that's what the model was in schools so it's not based on need and it's not based on what we understand about recovery and I think it gives the wrong message, unfortunately. You know, if, if you get discharged from a service, whatever people tell you, the message you're going to get is, well, they must have discharged me for a reason. It must be that I either I'm not going to make any more recovery. I think that's what most people think when they get discharged from a ser service. Oh, that must be it. That must be the end of my recovery road. And whether that is stated or not, and I think it's better if clinicians and medics don't state that because it's wrong. 
but that's the sort of subconscious message that's the message i would get if someone discharged me from a service it's like you're done really but it's not it's not true it's really just that they're trying to make room for the next person coming along so they're they're being equitable and fair but people are just not getting the therapy that they need and the, the wrong message is going out that you're basically done now yeah it's it's shockingly small that that those amount of hours it's how can people continue their lives like that it's um and like you say the very sobering figures and and again it's it's not difficult to think of if you if you think of any skill um and if i said well i'm just going to give you six or eight hours of practice you know i've said you know you want want to pass your driving test say so, well you can only have six or maybe eight lessons very few people you know somebody coming from scratch no almost nobody would pass their driving test after six or eight lessons you could think of anything you know if you wanted to if you wanted to become a footballer and say well we'll just give you six to eight hours of coaching and that's it almost any skill you think of takes many many hours of practice uh, and, and and you need feedback you need someone to tell you no that's not right look do it like this you need coaching uh, you can't just learn it on yourself learn it on your own so if you think of any part of human learning nothing really much happens in six to eight you know again if you said i'm going to learn french i say okay i'll give you six sessions you know how good you really you know you might learn how to be able to order some bread or order some something down the the station some tickets but you're not going to be able to converse with a french person after six to eight hours in fact we know that that takes somewhere around 300 hours just to get up to a kind of level where you could have reasonable conversations but no one's going to mistake you for a french person at 300 hours even so i think when we think about that it's just useful analogy it can seem a bit negative but it also shows you that people can learn it does take time it does take practice and unfortunately that does cost money to support patients and their carers to sort of get to this level where you can sort of be self-sustaining and self-supporting that really is the is the ultimate goal which even with this model we're not there yet but is, is something that we're looking to do via other funding streams amazing well we look forward to that happening and, you know, a lot of it is about education, educating others, and that's all coming together, like you were saying, and, and petitioning to an extent um, at how important it is. And, and like you say, it is that confidence boost, isn't it, that people are getting after they've had that program, that intensive nurse, and knowing that they are, can see that they're improving, and then going out and having the confidence to going, to talking to others, to engaging more, and to using their language. Thank you so much, Alex, for coming on. It's been so fascinating for us, hasn't it, Junior? It really, really has. I've learned so much. It's a lifelong journey that we have, and it's great to be able to continue to learn new strategies to support those best outcomes for all of us. So thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. And we'll have to get you on another time because you've yeah. just got so much information and I know our audience will get so much value from this. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.